Chapter 7 of the Bothy of Topernafriasich by Arthur Clough This LibriVox recording is part of the public domain. For she confessed, as they sat in the dusk, and he saw not her blushes. Else be confessed at the sports long ago with her father she saw him, when at the door the old man had told him the name of the Bothy. There after that, at the dance, yet again at the dance in Renoke. And she was silent, confused. Confused much rather Philip, buried his face in his hands, his face that with blood was bursting, silent, confused. Yet by pity she conquered her fear and continued. Katie is good and not silly. Be comforted, sir, about her. Katie is good and not silly, tender, but not like many carrying off, and at once for fear of being seen, in the bosom locking up as a cupboard the pleasure that any man gives them, keeping it out of sight as a prize they need be ashamed of. That is the way I think, sir, in England more than Scotland. No, she lives and takes pleasure in all, as in beautiful weather. Sorry to lose it, but just as we would be to lose fine weather and she is strong to return to herself and feel undeserted, for she always keeps burning a cheerful fire inside her. Oh, she is strong and not silly. She thinks no more about you. She has had kerchiefs before from gentle, I know, as from simple. Yes, she is good and not silly. Yet were you wrong, Mr. Philip? Wrong for yourself, perhaps, more than for her. But Philip replied not. Raised not his eyes from his hands on his knees, and Elspie continued. That was what you gave me much pain when I met you at the dance in Renoke. Dancing myself, too, with you. Well, Katie danced with Donald. That was what gave me such pain. I thought it all delusion. All a mere chance, an accident, not proper choosing. There were at least five or six... Not there, no, that I don't say, but in the, in the country about. You might just as well have been courting. That was what gave me much pain, and you won't remember that, though. Three days after, I met you, beside my uncle's walking, and I was wondering much, and hoped you wouldn't notice. So as I passed, I couldn't help looking. You didn't know me, but I was glad when I heard the next day you were gone to the teacher, and uplifting his face at last, with eyes dilated, large as great stares in mist, and dim, with dabbled lashes, filled with new tears starting. You think I do not remember? Said, suppose, that I did not observe? Ah, me, shall I tell you? Elspie, it was your look that sent me away from Renoke. It was your glance that, descending, an instant revelation showed me where I was and whitherward going, recalled me, sent me not to my books, but to wrestling of thoughts in the mountains. Yes, I have carried your glance with me, undimmed, unaltered, as a lost boat the compass some passing ship lent her. Many a weary mile on road and hill and moorland, it has been with me in shielding and both the of wandering drovers. It has been with me, more precious, in chariot and palace 
of Hares. Do you suppose I do not remember? I had not observed it? Oh, did the sailor bewildered observe when they told him his bearings? Oh, did he cast overboard when they parted the compass they gave him? And he continued more firmly, although with stronger emotion. Elspy, why should I speak it? You cannot believe it, and should not. Why should I say that I love? Which I all but said to another? Yet should I dare? Should I say, O oh, Elspy, you only I love you, first and soul, in my life, that has been and surely that shall be? Could, oh, could you believe it, O oh, Elspy, believe it, and spurn not? Is it possible? Possible? Elspy? Well, she answered, quietly, after her fashion stoning. Well, I think of it. Yes, I don't know, Mr. Philip, but only it feels to me strangely, like to the high new bridge, when they used to build it below there, over the Burnham Glen on the road. You won't understand me. But I keep saying in my mind, this long time, slowly with trouble, I've been building myself up, up and toyfully raising, just like as if the bridge were to do it itself without masons, painfully getting myself upraised, one stone and another, all one side, I mean. And now I see on the other, just such another fabric uprising better and stronger, close to me, coming to join me. And then I sometimes fancy. Sometimes I find myself dreaming at nights about arches and bridges. Sometimes I dream of a great invisible hand coming down and dropping the keystone in the middle. There in my dreaming, there I feel the great keystone coming in and through it. Feel the other part, all the other stones of the archway, joined into mine with a queer, happy sense of completeness tingling, all the way up from the other side basement stones in the water. Though the very grains of mine, just like one the steel that showed, that you showed us, moved to the magnet, it seemed a feeling got hold of both of them. But this is confusion and nonsense. I am mixing all things I can think of, and you won't understand me, Mr. Philip. But while she was speaking, so it happened. A moment she paused from her work, and pondering, laid her hand in her lap. Philip took it. She did not resist. So he retained her fingers, the knitting being stopped. But emotion came all over her, and more, more and more, from his hand, from her heart. Most from the sweet idea and image her brain was renewing. So he retained her hand, and, his tears down dropping on it, trembled a long time, kissed it at last, and she ended. And as she ended, up rose he, saying, What have I heard, oh, what have I done, that such words should be said to me? Oh, I see it, see the great keystone coming down from the heaven of heavens. And he fell at her, he at her feet, and buried his face in her apron. But under the moon and stars they went to the cottage. Elspie sighed and said, Be patient, dear Mr. Philip. Do not do anything hasty. 
It is all so soon, so sudden. Do not say anything yet to anyone. Elspie, he answered. Does not my friend go on Friday? I then shall see nothing of you. Do not I go myself on Monday? But oh, he said, Elspie, do as I bid, my child. Do not go on calling me Mr. Might I not just as well be calling you Miss Elpsby? Call me this heavenly night for once, for the first time, Philip. Philip, she said and laughed, and she said she could not say it. Philip, she said. He turned and kissed the sweet lips as they said it. But on the morrow, Elpsy kept out of the way of Philip, and at the evening seat, when he took her hand by the alders, drew it back, saying almost peevishly, No, Mr. Philip, I was quite right last night. It was all too soon, too sudden. What I told you before was foolish, perhaps was hasty. When I think it over, I am shocked and terrified at it. Not that at all I unsay it, that is, I know I said it, and when I said it I felt it. But, oh, you must wait, Mr. Philip. We mustn't pull ourselves at the great keystone of the center. Someone else up above must hold it, fit it, and fix it. If we try to do it, we shall only damage the archway, damage all our work that we wrought, our painful upbuilding. When you remember, you took my hand last evening, talking. I was all over a tremble. As you pressed the fingers, and afterward kissed it, I could not speak. And then, too, as we went home, you kissed me for saying your name. It was dreadful. I have been kissed before, she added, blushing slightly. I have been kissed more than once by Donald, my cousin, and others. It was the way of the lads, and I make up my mind not to mind it. But Mr. Philip last night, and from you, is different. Quite, sir. When I think it all over, I am shocked and terrified at it. Yes, it is dreadful to me. She paused but continued. Smiling, almost fiercely continued, looking upward. You are too strong, you see, Mr. Philip. You are like the sea there, which will come through the straits and all between the mountains, forcing its great strong tide into every nook and inlet getting far in, up this quiet stream of sweet inland water, sucking it up, stopping it, turning it, driving it backward, quite preventing its own quiet running. And then, soon after, back it goes off, leaving weeds on the shore, rack and uncleanliness. And the poor burn in the glen tries again its peaceful running, but it is brackish and tainted, and all its banks disordered. That is what I dreamed last night. I was the Bernie, trying to get along through the tyrannous brine, and could not. I was confided and squeezed in the coils of the great salt tide that would mix in itself with me and change me. I felt myself changing, and I struggled and screamed. I believe in my dream. It was dreadful. You are too strong, Mr. Philip. I am but a poor slender Bernie, used in the glens and the rocks and the rowan and birch of the woodies, quite unused, unused to the great salt sea, quite afraid and unwilling. Ere she had spoken two words, and Philip released her fingers. 
As she went on, he recoiled, fell back, and shook and shivered. There he stood, looking pale and ghastly. And when she had ended, answering in hollow voice, It is true, oh, quite true, Alpsby. Oh, you are always right. Oh, what I have been doing. I would depart tomorrow. But oh, forget me not wholly, wholly, Alpsby, nor hate me. No, do not hate me, my Alpsby. But a revulsion passed the brain and bosom of Alpsy. As she got up from her seat on the rock, putting by her knitting, went to him where he stood and answered, No, Mr. Philip. No, you are good, Mr. Philip, and gentle. I am the foolish. No, Mr. Philip, forgive me. She stepped right to him and boldly took up his hand and placed it in hers. He, daring no movement, took up the cold, hanging hand. Uh, forcing the heavy elbow. I'm afraid, she said, but I will, and kissed the fingers. And he fell on his knees and kissed her own past counting. But a revulsion wrought in the brain and bosom of Alpsy, and the passion she just had compared to the venomous ocean, urging the spring tide its masterful way through the mountains, forcing and flooding the silvery stream as it runs from the inland. That great water withdrawn, receding here and passive, felt she in mirrored springs, her, her sources far in the mountains, stirring, collecting, rising, upheaving, forth outflowing, talking and joining, right welcome, that delicate rill in the valley, filling it, making it strong, and still descending, seeking, with a blind forefeeling descending, evermore seeking, with a delicious forefeeling the great still sea before it, there deep into it, far to carry, and lose its bosom. Waters that still from their sources exhaustless are fain to be added. As he was kissing her fingers, and knelt on the ground before her, he leaned backward, she sank to her seat, and of what she was doing, ignorant, bewildered, and sweet, multinuous, vague emotion, stooping, knowing not what, put her lips to the curl on his forehead. And Philip, raising himself gently for the first time round her, passing his arms close, close, and folding her close to his bosom. As they went home by the moon, forgive me, Philip, she whispered. I have so many things to think of all of a sudden. I, who had never once thought a thing in my ignorant islands. End of chapter 7